0: And everybody, we'll be in Matthew chapter 12. And we're going to jump right into it. So you ready? Yes, sir. All right, I'm in the ESV. Um, if you're in the NIV or the NASB or the King James, you're going to see the parallels, different words, same thrust. Here we go. Matthew 12, 15 through 21 says, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice of victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. So this is our text. And here's the title and the main point of it all. Y'all, Jesus is the suffering servant. And right now, as we see here today, we might say, okay, he's the suffering servant. No, I hope by the end, you like me, like all of those who would have been reading this will say, Jesus is not the suffering servant. He's not a suffering servant. He is the suffering servant. And this changes everything about who we are so that we can sit here today. So that's our text for today. And I'm just gonna tell you, we've got a lot. So we're just gonna like buckle in and we're gonna start going. So right here, let's look at verse 15. First main point y'all is this, Jesus withdrew. It says, Jesus aware of this withdrew from there. And that this is verse 14. So take a look at verse 14, which was a verse right before it. Keep this in mind. It says, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Oh, They weren't just seeking to punish him, to discredit him, to like defame his name they were seeking to destroy him like if you go to the end of every single gospel like if we were to flip to Matthew 27 right now then we're going to see that their animosity is not going to cease until they hang him on a cross the chief priests and the Sanhedrin and the council, they are the ones who are stirring up the crowd, the religious leaders, those who are trying to destroy him right here, alongside so many other religious leaders in Matthew 27, they are stirring up the crowd to crucify him. You and I might think that somebody's trying to destroy us. They were seeking to put him to death. That's what that means. In Mark 15, it even says that Pilate detected that it was envy that drove the chief priest. And yet he still turned Barabbas free and Christ to the cross. Their heart is bent against Christ. And Jesus, knowing this, aware of this, he withdraws. And we've got to look at what that means. Because I want you to keep a couple of things in mind. Here's Here's a really good, mysterious verse for us. Go to Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Because I think it puts everything for today into context. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Lest we believe the darkness wins, we need this verse. And this verse is going to line out everything else as we go forward. It says this. Acts 2:23, this Jesus." delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. He's talking to men. He says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Church, we need to understand this, that this was always the plan for Jesus Christ. From the beginning, everything that we just sang about was according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. And that definite plan and the foreknowledge of God included that he would be crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Y'all, he knew what it would mean to be born, and he knew always that his death was required for the salvation of mankind. And that's what we've got to look at today. So now is here where I'm going to pause and pray one more time that we have that hyper-focus on this, that this was the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God, and that's where all of our hope and peace is. I know I jumped right in today. We cannonballed right into it. And now we're to come up for a breath of air and we're going to swim in this for a while. Lord, teach us to pause today. Not in what we've known and have always heard and what we we just kind of get used to, but Lord, help us to pause today. Help my heart to pause and see that you are the suffering servant that you came intentionally and purposefully to redeem us at a great cost to yourself. May we never puff out our chest and pound it and say, oh, but I am God." May we be humble and say, oh, but I am a child of God. We take great hope and joy and peace in that, but it came at such a great cost to you who has overcome. And we praise all of your sons. Holy name, amen. Okay, so there's another weird part that he and you're going to see this all throughout. He tells people as they go to to not say a word. Don't make me known over and over again. And I'm just like, if I'm Jesus and I'm supposed to be the Messiah, like why not tell everyone so that they can come? But I just want you to keep this tucked back. This is a minor point, but we preach through John. I don't know how long ago, and I don't know how long it took us to move through the Gospel of John, but we preached through John, and one of the main things in preaching through it was he would say again and again, his hour had not yet come. My hour is not now. My time is not yet. And that's the same thing that's running right here. Jesus is operating on a divine timetable that he did not want interrupted. He could have stopped this at any time. He could have stopped the conspiracy at any time. He could have stopped his crucifixion at any time, his arrest at any time, any and, of, any and all adversity that came against him. He could have stopped at any time. I'm going to show you the verse here in a second, but he doesn't. Instead, what he does is he continues on and he says, don't tell them who I am or who has done this thing because he's operating on a divine timetable. So much so that even whenever Peter attempts to stop Jesus uh, later in Matthew 16, Jesus says, now the son of man will begin to suffer. And Peter says, oh, this will never happen. And what does Jesus say to him? He says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And Peter was saying, we're never going to let him crucify you. This is never going to happen. To which Jesus replies, get behind me, Satan. I am not relenting. I am not stopping. You are thinking as a man, not on the things of God. Y'all, the danger for Jesus Christ was never the cross itself. The danger for Jesus Christ was never the cross itself, but that he would not reach the cross that had been set before him by his father. And so as his acclaim grows, there is this tension that would have been growing there politically where he would have this fear of being taken captive and forced to be the king there on earth. There was at the same time this this tension as his acclaim and power grows that he would be taken and taken captive and thrust to the cross before his time. He knows what his ministry is. He knows what he is to accomplish and he will accomplish it. He does not, he is not going to relent in going to the cross. That's what we see over and over again. In his withdrawal also. So I want you to say, it's not, his withdrawal is not a lack, it's not because of fear. It's that he's going to accomplish what the Father's put before him. But also in his withdrawal, there's an act of humility. If you go to Matthew Twenty-six. Just flip there real quick. I want to show you verse fifty-three and fifty-four. This is all setting up that Jesus is the suffering servant, because that's what Matthew tells us he is. We just got to see it play out here. In Matthew twenty-six, the whole section is uh, starts around like at the end of like forty-seven, somewhere around there. But they come with torches, with clubs, this great crowd, these soldiers. And in 53, Jesus says to him, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be, scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? I just want to remind you That everything in Jesus' suffering, in his passion, in his going to the cross, was according to the the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. This is how it had to be, and Jesus knew it. And he could, if he could have called down legions of angels there as he was being arrested, he could have done anything to stop the Pharisees in that moment. And his choice was to withdraw. And in his withdrawing, he is fulfilling Scripture. He had all authority to stop at any moment what was going on. But he withdraws and he thus fulfills scripture. Y'all, though the world that he was living in and that we live in, though it was hateful and cold and seeks to destroy him, verses 19 and 20 of Matthew 12. So go ahead and flip back to Matthew 12. I know we're going back and forth a lot. Don't worry. We're ultimately going to land in Isaiah and we're going to be there for a long time. Okay? So we're just getting all the flipping out of the way. But take a look at verse 19 and 20. It tells us. Why he withdrew, lest we think that our Savior was weak or worried. He wasn't. He was in complete control of the situation. He chose to do those things on the Sabbath. He taught on the Sabbath and then going from there, he chose to heal on the Sabbath. He's in complete control of the situation so that whenever they seek to destroy him, he withdraws and he fulfills what we find in verse 19 and 20, which is this. He, though they seek him, though they hate him, he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. That wasn't his purpose, nor a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not Quench! In fact, even of this, even of his enemies who hate him, Jesus would not break those bruised reeds and he would not stomp out that smoldering wick. He would rather leave them and rather than break them for such is the grace of God so that he could save to the uttermost. He could have responded in every other way to the darkness that came against him, church. And then I want you to choose the way. I want you to see the path that he actually did choose. I want you to hear this also before we move on and push in just a little bit further. I need you and I not to misperceive the fullness of his holiness in this scene also, because here we see him withdraw. We see him graciously step back. But in other instances and ultimately one day we will see Christ returning to destroy all of those who have rejected him and God the Father. And while he is patient with the rebellious now, on that day and when he comes, there will there is a coming wrath for the rebellious. There is a day whenever his patience ends. There is a day whenever his long suffering ends. And praise God, he was patient with you and me. Because we were rebellious, we were children of wrath, we were wicked like the rest of mankind, and yet he was patient. Because you and I, y'all, we were the bruised reed, and we were the smoldering wick. That means that if there was a bruised reed, the, the suffering servant, the one who would come, he would not go and just break the reed down. He would not just get rid of that broken reed. If there was a smoldering wick, the flame of which was about to go out, then he didn't just go and put it out, but he would be gracious in that. You and I were the bruised reed. We were the smoldering wicks. But I just want you to know that for all the patience and the long suffering of our Lord that we see, there is also a coming day whenever he will set everything straight. He is holy in the heavens and he is coming again. And until then, he patiently deals with the rebellious and continues to call them to his side. Look at verse 15b, the the rest of that says, And many followed him. So he withdraws. It says, And many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. I just think this is really incredible to see. He doesn't stop, he just goes to the next town. It actually matches what he told his disciples. If anyone rejects you, shake the dust off your feet and go on to the next town. He's just doing what he has called his disciples to do. He models it. Even though Jesus withdrew from the Pharisees, he continues on and he continues to heal all of them that would come to him. Do you know why? What was Jesus's desire? To do the will of the Father. So he continues on and he keeps pressing In John 17, 4, he says, he's talking to the Father. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Nothing will deter Christ, even from the cross. And now here's our main point. We're going to be here a while. And I'm going to, I'm just going to tell you, you are going to get a lot of scripture and a little of me in this point. There's four points. We've already covered one, two. We're about to hit three. And four is a small point also. You're going to have a lot of Scripture. And I believe that the Scripture speaks for itself, which is exactly what I want for you today. I do not want you to be encouraged um, by, by me. I don't want you to be like rejoicing because of me. I want you to be encouraged and rejoicing in the Scripture. Because this was all according, everything, to the definite plan and according to the foreknowledge of God that He determined should happen and Christ being born knew that this was a path that he would take and therefore here is the biggest of all the points that you've got to know Jesus is the suffering servant. You're going to get it here in just a moment I promise and you're going to be like okay like y'all, he's the suffering servant and you and I sit here today and it's old language to some of us or it's um, in in ineffective language to some of us right now. But I just want us to see this and rest in it. And I hope by the end, you're just like, oh my goodness, this Jesus is the suffering servant. And you don't have to smile about it and be like rejoicing whenever we say suffering servant. But there is this amazing thing that I hope you see. And that it's, I think, I hope you see more of the fullness of Christ who died for us. Everything, just to kind of bring it all to this point, all of this, the Pharisees' hatred, Jesus' tranquility and persistence in the, the mission, it's actually the fulfillment of Scripture. That's what Matthew tells us in Matthew 12. He says that because of this, he withdrew and many followed him and he healed them all and, com- and de- commanded them not to make his name known. He says all of this is- was to fulfill what was prophesied in Isaiah. And he's going to quote Isaiah. So everything is the fulfillment of Scripture. Let's look at that one one more time um, to kind of launch us. Then we're going to look at it in its full context here in a second. It says in Matthew 12, 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant. This is God speaking. Behold, my servant, God's servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. Y'all, cross life. This is a pretty massively big deal that Matthew just pointed out to us. That for Jesus to be the suffering servant is an incredibly big deal. He is not in your notes, he is not the suffering servant. He's not just all caps the suffering servant. He is all caps, italicized, bolded, underlined, the Suffering servant. This is who he is. Okay, so the suffering servant. Like, what's the big deal with that? So the suffering servant is a term from the Old Testament. And it refers to God's servant who would willingly come and be obedient and obediently suffer. So throughout the Old Testament, we've talked about how there would be these prophecies of the coming Christ. Well, in Isaiah, there's four main passages whenever the servant is referred to. And for a while, people would think, well, the suffering servant is Israel. This is they're talking about Israel because Israel has suffered. But a fuller understanding you're going to see is not that Israel was a suffering servant, but that Jesus Christ is the suffering servant and he becomes the embodiment of Israel. He becomes the Israel who fulfills all of these things. It's the servant that God promises. And it's a servant who his word says, a servant who will come and a servant who will suffer. And it's this servant that was the hope of Israel. Whenever they're waiting on the Messiah, whenever they're waiting on the king to come, whenever they're waiting on the one who would die for them, they're waiting on the suffering servant. This is just the term that they came to associate. Not that a servant was coming, but that a servant was going to come who would suffer. It's this servant that they longed for. Keep in mind, in the Old Testament, they had no knowledge of Jesus Christ. You and I look back at the cross, and these things make sense to us. They, they are longing for a hope that they cannot see. They just know that there's going to be one who will suffer, and in suffering, fulfill all that God has promised. This servant, the suffering servant, is therefore the hoped-for promise. And in Isaiah, there are four key passages that point to the suffering servant. And so as we read them... I am at the end of each one going to say, see Jesus there. Like just to make sure that we look back. And I don't think I'm going to have to do that. I think you're going to see it. But can you imagine having no hope as you sit here today? Like the hope that we rest in of Jesus Christ, that everything is accomplished, that everything is fulfilled, that we will be with him forever and ever, never apart from him. They were longing for that. They had the law, they had the festivals, they had the Sabbaths and the solemn assemblies and all these things. They had God who dwelt in the tabernacle, but a curtain that separated them because His holiness and their depravity could not be united at that moment. But Jesus rips the, the curtain and He brings depravity and divinity together in this mystery of the cross. Like everything that you and I see in these verses was a mystery for them. But I think that as we read them and we hear the mystery, then we glory in Christ even more because you see that it was all foretold and he is massively more beautiful and mysterious than we ever could imagine. Therefore, go to Isaiah chapter 42 and we're going to be in Isaiah. We're going to look at four passages. And it's going to be a lot of passages and just a little bit of commentary, and then a lot of passages and a little bit of commentary. Look at Isaiah 42, 1 through 9. Literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ. Isaiah writes, and here's what we have. God speaking says, Behold my servants, whom I uphold. My chosen in whom my soul delights. I, God the Father, have put my spirit upon him, the servant. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out who spread out the earth and what comes from it who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it I, he says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant and he's talking to the servant there again. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and from the prison those who sit in darkness. I I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I will give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. He tells us of the surfer- suffering servant who is coming. Did you like see him in all those moments and you look back and even whenever he's before Pilate and he's at the high council and they're asking him questions and will you give no defense? He just sits there silently because he will not cry aloud. He will not quarrel in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. Jesus, y'all, is the fulfillment of the suffering servant. See Jesus there. Just see him. He's here in Isaiah prophesied as the suffering servant who is sent by God, full of grace and mercy and truth, coming to save through his suffering. Look at Isaiah chapter 49. It's our second Isaiah passage. This is one where they say we hear the the song of the suffering servant, we hear the suffering servant speaking. Isaiah records what the suffering servant would be saying. And he says, listen to me, O coastlands, give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword in the shadow of his hand. He hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me in his quiver. He hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain, I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, the suffering servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Cross life see Jesus there. A servant prophesied to bring God's people back to him, to be a light to the nations, so that salvation may reach to the ends of the earth, even to Fort Smith, Arkansas, right here at this exact moment. They did not know Jesus. They just knew that a Messiah would come. The Messiah has come. The suffering servant has come. Everything that you have, you and I have in Christ was only hoped for long ago. And now, I need you to understand, it could have absolutely been lost if Christ had quit and relented. And He had every right to do so. Why would Christ die for a sinner like me? Look at Isaiah 50 through 11 Isaiah, Isaiah 54 through 11 hear the servant's voice again the Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary Morning by morning, he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who would pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates God the Father, he who vindicates is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. There's a lot there and I can't unpack it all and I, it's just not where we can go today. But where we can go today, you all see Jesus there, who gave his back to be struck, and his beard to be plucked. A mystery hidden for the ages, but a hope for those who waited. A servant who would suffer and give his back to be beaten, but who will not be put to shame, because God will uphold him. He says, who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Above that, he says, I gave my back to those who strike, my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord helps me. Therefore, I I have not been disgraced. And now I want to take you to Isaiah 52. And Isaiah, the prophet, records the words of our Lord. Here is probably the fullest and most familiar picture of the suffering servant. Isaiah 52, 13 through, I'm sorry, Isaiah 52, 13. We're going to go all the way to the end of 53. This is one of those where Remember, there were no chapters, there were no verses. There were simply the words that were recorded. And and we've gone back throughout the ages and, and added chapter breaks, so it would be easy for God's people to be, have references and, and then verses. And this is one of those where probably would have been better to, for that goalpost to be moved back just a little bit, back into where 52 is. It's all together, as it was always meant to be. Isaiah records... His prophecy, the words of our God the Father, and it says, Behold my servant, who for Israel would have been the suffering servant. That's who they knew him to be, whoever this mystery is. Behold my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told of them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. And here is a picture of the servant. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, the servant, grew up before him, God the Father, like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he is taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, God the Father, has put him, the suffering servant, to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring for the transgressors. Y'all, Jesus is the servant who suffered. A suffering servant who came. He was promised. He was fulfilled. Jesus is the suffering servant. And so how do we reconcile the suffering servant right now in Matthew 12 and who's been prophesied With Jesus in Matthew 12, who also says there is one who is greater than the temple and he is here. How do we bring those two things together? How can he, in other words, like our final point, greater than the temple, suffering as a servant. Like how can how can we bring this great and wondrous mystery together? How can he, in other words, who is greater than the temple greater than the Sabbath, greater than the feeble shadows of the law, how can the radiant, glorious, majestic one who deserves all honor, glory, and praise, how can he be that suffering servant? And it's in Philippians chapter 2. So go to Philippians chapter 2. And this is how the radiant, glorious, majestic Jesus Christ, who deserves all honor, glory, and praise, who is worthy... In the heavenly courts, this is how he can be the suffering servant. In Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8, Paul's writing to him, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Look at this. But emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In his book um, called Wisdom and Leadership, Craig Hamilton just happens, you know, how God works out all the, all the timeliness in our lives and it's just, oh, that's convenient, Lord, that you drop that right there in the chapter I was reading this week. Here's what I come across. The great exalted king of the universe, mighty Messiah, is also and at the same time the suffering servant who lays down his life and shoulders iniquity on behalf of his people. He goes on, he says, these two roles aren't in tension and he is one and then the other. Now, the way is the way he is a conquering and ruling Messiah is by being the suffering servant. What wonderful, weird mystery that God would do this. Y'all, the wonder and the mystery is this, that the radiance of heaven is the servant who suffered. The one that you and I worship now is the one that they were longing for. The peace you and I have now is because he died on the cross and it was known that he would die on the cross. Jesus came and he fulfilled absolutely everything that was set out before him. So when the Pharisees rise up to destroy him, Jesus withdraws because he will not quarrel and he will not cry aloud. He will go to those who are bruised reeds and smoldering wicks, and he will be gentle with them. Listen to Hebrews 2 as we get ready to finish. Hebrews 2, 9 through 10 says this. But we see him, Jesus. Jesus. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste of death for everyone. So, I'm saying it over and over again, so whenever you leave here today, you're like, now the main point of that was, and you all got it, Jesus is the suffering servant, the hope of all the ages. So two different groups I want to address as we close. To those who are not Christians right now. You sit in churches and we come and we gather, and maybe we've been doing that for a long time, so much so that that we believe maybe I am a Christian, maybe I'm not a Christian, I don't know if I am a Christian or not but I'm always in church, I'm always active, I'm always participating, I've done missions even, I've done good things, I even tie like, but you don't know that you're a Christian. Like, that's just the truth of it. And I don't know who you are. Only God knows the heart. But, to those who are not Christians, I would say this, I beg of you, call upon the name of the Lord. Like, you have heard that, that this Jesus is the one who has been prophesied about from the beginning of the ages. Just because you sit in a church doesn't make you a Christian any more than standing in a garage makes you a car, right? There has to be substance to that makeup. But you need to know that without Jesus as your Savior, you are dead in your sins. You need to know that hell awaits. But throughout today, you have heard of his suffering for you. You've heard of his faithfulness to God and you have heard of his gentleness towards sinners and the weak and the weary. He says, come. He says, you're a bruised reed. I will not break it. You're a smoldering wick. I will not quench it. Instead, he says, come unto me for I am gentle and lowly. And if I say, call upon the name of the Lord, then there are probably those who are sitting there like, I don't even know what that means. That's a lot of church and ease right there. I don't know. Like, what does that mean to call upon the name of the Lord? In other words, what must someone do to be saved? Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. So here it is. If you want to be saved or if you're having this conversation with someone and they want to be saved, it comes down to this. There is no special prayer. There is no perfect goal you attain. It says you confess he is Lord. You believe he is Lord. You follow him as Lord. And then at this point, it's great to grab someone really close and begin to talk to them, one of the elders or someone who is walking in the faith. To the other group, to those who are Christians and therefore follow him, my appeal is this. See the beautiful mystery of Jesus, the suffering servant who was obedient to all the scriptures and all that God the Father gave him so that you could be forgiven, redeemed, and have salvation for all of eternity. He is grander and greater than we ever begin to grasp, but may we keep pressing toward knowing Him more. And my last one for Christians is, remember the gospel. So freely given to us at the expense of God's only Son, Jesus Christ, so that we may know Him in His glory and rest forever and ever. You and I, We were not saved because we figured it all out and finally shaped up. We were saved because Jesus suffered as the servant in our place. And that's why we gather. Let's pray. Lord, what you do with your word in us is a wonderful work and mystery that I am glad I do not have to do. Lord, your word has been opened before us. And the glory of who Christ is as a suffering servant is plain in Scripture. God, we come to you because of your servant who came for us. And Jesus, we thank you for your faithfulness and obedience. Who are we that you would die for us? Teach us what it means to walk in light of that humility, and of that gospel freedom so that there is joy and peace and forgiveness because the servant has come and the servant has accomplished all. And we rejoice in all that you, God the Father, have done for us. And we praise all in your sons. Holy name. Amen.